I'm Joan Donovan, the research director of the Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And I direct a small research team called the Technology and Social Change Research Project. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. When you meet somebody who is not familiar with your work, what do you tell them that you do for a living? Oh, it is so embarrassing to say I research the internet because people are like, that's a job. They're like, yeah, I do research on the internet. Have you, are you Q? I'm like, well, actually, if you read some of these message boards, they think I am Q. That happened to me once. It was very bizarre. It's a hard job, which is to say that when I do describe what I do, people have a lot of opinions about how the internet should work, which actually I find very healthy. But people also have a lot of, misunderstanding about how the technology all fits together. But there's something, you know, about this job, you know, I've been researching the internet for a decade now. I started my dissertation research on the Occupy movement, and I was full of hope and excitement about the possibility of these platforms to connect people to people, people to content, journalists, to advocates, to policymakers, Over the years, though, I've become very disillusioned with technology because of the way in which I've seen it decimate communities and fracture families and the threat, the size of these platforms now pose to governments is not just like because I think governments are somehow great things. I'm probably a bit of an anarchist uh, in the sense that I want the people to rule. I, I really believe in the power of the people. However, governments are really instrumental in terms of delivering services to people, especially people who are not going to be able to get access to healthcare and, and people are not going to have access to redress for civil rights violations or, you know, justice. And And as messy as government is, it's still better than no government. As someone who's been in this field and trying to understand it, when people ask me, what do you do? I'm just like a lot of different things. Because if your answer to that question at a dinner party is anything close to what you just said, I'm sure you're as popular as I am at that dinner party. You know, one thing that's interesting about this field of studying disinformation is how most people think, oh, well, I would know disinformation when I saw it. And so one of my favorite things to do is to trick people with stuff that I see and like watch them fall for it. And then they're like, wait, that like, was like, give me, give me an example. Like, how does that, how does that? Play oh, out? I've got a whole ream of stuff that's like fake political propaganda oh. makes it look like, you know, a politician saying this thing that they never said. Or my favorite one still to this day is stuff around. Hillary Clinton's campaign because she had never really understood what it meant to do a digital campaign. She was just kind of canvassing online, whereas the trolls, they had so much propaganda that looked like her campaign materials, but Mm. said absolutely banana things like just way out there stuff. So it's just that kind of stuff I like to fool people with. So what was your path into this world? I was a teenager 
I was really into punk rock music and I loved going to shows, but I knew you had to avoid the tall guys with the shaved heads and the suspenders, the ones with the big black boots, but the ones with the big black boots with the red laces might be okay. And I learned just how to read skinhead culture to just not get punched. So I like to go to shows. I was living in Boston. I was really into ska music. It was, but it was, it was a scary scene because if the promoter had booked a skinhead band on with your favorite other band, or you were just going to see the mighty, mighty Boston's, you never knew what was going to happen. Not just at the show, but after the show on the walk back to the tee or on the tee, if people were going to get into a fight. Over the years, I was a show promoter, was in bands and things, and I just kind of learned what it meant to care about community, to care about people who were going to be targeted by these folks. It's not like Boston is this very robust, diverse town. (laughs) You know, it's like black kids at shows were going to get beat up by the skinheads. And so you had to have a plan for that. And you had to be able to be tough and say, no, you're not going to come to this show or we're going to kick you out. And so I just kind of built my awareness around that. And then years later, when I was choosing what to research for my dissertation, I got really brought into techno culture and trying to understand how people get things done with the internet. And one thing that you learn about with movements is there's always a counter movement. There's always something else that's trying to thwart them from becoming who they are, their issues and their advocacy. And so over the years, In particular, when I was doing my postdoc and I was looking at white supremacist use of DNA ancestry tests, I was also attuned to the fact that white supremacists were really keyed into the 2015 election campaigns and then into the 2016 Trump campaign. And so I still had all that residual knowledge from being a young punk. And I was like, wait, there are Nazis everywhere. (laughs) And it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, I get it. I kind of feel what I need to do. And then Data and Society took a chance on me. You know, Dana Boyd and Janet Haven and the good folks over there, Sam Hines Garcia were like, we get it. Know what you want to do. We want to support that. Because it's not common for a PhD person to just up and split for a nonprofit. Everybody that had kind of raised me in academia was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I got dreams. Like, I want to make a difference in this world. Like, the only thing I care about at the end of the day is that the thing I bothered to do all day matters to somebody else. So what's the one thing that you would do to stop extremism, misinformation, and hate in our society? I'm just kidding. I know. I'm like jumping right in. I have one answer that I would do, and it would be to actually arrest some of these folks for crimes that they do the first time uh, so that they aren't able and inspired to come back and do things worse the next time. In particular, I had in mind the moment in December when the Proud Boys were using the Internet to broadcast themselves burning stolen Black Lives Matter banners. And several of the people featured in that video later went on to storm the Capitol. So that's just one instance that's been front of mind for me for the past few months about What happens when people film themselves doing crimes? They're readily identifiable. They raise money Mm. based on uh, that kind of hateful activity. And really nothing happens, not even to the level of like losing their accounts on social media. But there is just no accountability. Are you feeling any bit of uh, sort of solace in the fact that There has been a level of accountability that I think maybe even surpasses what some people thought was possible and the 
300 plus arrests and the ongoing arrests of people who actually were part of the insurrection. Arrest is one thing, and we'll see what the sentencing ends up looking like. And the discovery process, I think, is actually going to teach us more about the Internet than we would have been able to learn on our own, especially as we look at the digital discovery and the data trails left behind and how much connective infrastructure is still in place for some of these groups. It's fair to be a little uh, concerned about how it might play out. You know, one of the lasting images I have of the insurrection was Baked Alaska inside the Capitol, live streaming on, I think it was DLive, what he was doing. And, you know, you had mentioned people using these platforms to raise money. And that was a case where somebody was doing it in real time and getting the support of thousands who are watching him and interacting with him as he's live streaming. I don't think people have fully wrapped their mind around that phenomenon, right? That that's even something that extremists and conspiracy theorists are doing. Where do you sort of view that in the issues we have to be concerned about and sort of pushing back against hate and extremism, the ability to bring folks on a journey with them? I want to say that it was probably sometime around 2015 is when I started watching Baked Alaska streams and really looking at this phenomenon of live streaming and the way in which people were interacting with what we would call YouTubers and how for some of these YouTubers, the hate movement was something that they got sort of folded into because they were marginally popular And then they get targeted by people who are avowed white nationalists, people that are not afraid of using the term, and they flirt with it. Baked Alaska had been this this kind of YouTuber looking for an opportunity to become famous. And the streams that he had been doing, which were these debates, he would often be the host of the debate. and He'd set up some noxious white supremacist versus some Lefty also looking to prove a point and they'd they'd have these back and forth that they called blood sports. And one night in particular, I'll never forget, I was listening and I was texting with a few colleagues. We got to do a report on this. This is terrible. And it was because uh, Baked Alaska, along with a bunch of other white supremacists, white nationalists and racial realists were just chatting about people's right to life and what an ethnostate would look like in the whole while the super chats are coming in and mm-hmm. the money's coming in and the conversation keeps going on. And then it hits the homepage of YouTube as one of the most watched live streams in the moment. And I'm sitting there listening to it and I'm saying to myself, wow, if I really had power in this field, I'd be able to tell somebody, right? And the thing about these people is none of them in these communities flag each other unless it's part of a game to deplatform someone they don't like anymore. So you just saw more and more people watching, more and more people in the chat room. So we go to work the next day and what we do is we just take those dozen or so people that were on that stream that night. And we just start to look at who else is on their channels and who else is guests of theirs and and just hand draw a map really about who's in touch with who mm. to try to get a sense of this influence their economy as a consequence of that, who is making money off of talking to each other. But then also how white nationalists were actually starting to become more of the center of these networks of people mm. that like to debate online. And they were able to really climb a ladder of content creators by being very contentious. And for a long time, Baked Alaska would sit on the sidelines and say, well, not me. I'm not one of these guys. This is too far for me. 
But really, the truth was told on everyone uh, the night before the Unite the Right rally, that torch march. He was live streaming that and thousands of people were watching, myself included. And I was just horrified. And for years, he's jumped from platform to platform doing the same kind of thing, which sometimes is called IRL live streaming or in real life Mm -hmm. live streaming. But the money he makes off of harassing people, off of causing a scene is his job now. What's interesting, too, about what he what he did when you look at some of the commentary in real time of those who were communicating with him, it's not always clear, right, whether they totally support his ideology, his messages. This might be just fun for some people. And I guess the question is, does that matter? Because that is the lifeblood that enables certain extremists to continue to do what they're doing. How many are serious believers and supporters versus how many think this is like ironic and funny? Yeah, this is one of the big struggles of the field. And one of the things that I think, uh, you know, people who research extremism have struggled with, which is like back in the day, yeah, people were literally card carrying members of the KKK. With the Internet, something else is happening which is to say that people might be brought in for the jokes and the irony. I mean, Daily Stormer is a really good example of this. I can't even tell if the style guide was a media op or not. Seems like it might have been a way to get attention. <laughs> and, and this is the, the neo-Nazi uh, uh, website run by, yeah. by Andrew Anglin. Yep. Yeah. So this website, you know, suggests that if you are going to write posts or content, the style guide says to keep it light and funny so that people can always guess if it's your true belief or not. The mechanism by which someone goes down the rabbit hole is really interesting. And I think part of the features of social media have really aided this over the years. One is repetition. You see the same things over and over and over again. So memes become a really important tool for bringing someone into the rabbit hole. Then there's redundancy, seeing the same thing on a bunch of different places, especially with YouTube. What you tend to see is a companion chat platform, be it Discord or people chatting on 4chan, 8chan or whatever the chan of the week is, or, you know, they're, they're talking somewhere else. So there's repetition plus redundancy. And then the third thing that's very unique to social media is responsiveness. That is, you get into the rabbit hole and you ask basically, which way do I go? And someone will serve you up a link and say, hey, you kind of belong over here. Or oh, if you have a question about black on white crime, you should go over here. Right. And so there's some kind of responsiveness built into social media and especially the YouTube chat that allows for these folks to kind of figure out where someone is and bring them in, not because they're going to become a card carrying member of whatever the flavor of the alt right right there is today, but because there's a worldview that is being spread. And then the last feature of the rabbit hole is reinforcement, which was really the way in which the algorithms work, which is once you search for things like QAnon or alt-right once, you are going to see content for the next couple of weeks because especially on YouTube, the algorithm is going to try to reinforce that interest. Those four things combined, though, seem to be the way in which people get sucked into these rabbit holes and then stay. Right. When I hear what you're saying, I think how are we going to teach people to be more critical consumers of that? Because I'm also struck by the fact that you look at some of those who've described why they went to DC on January 6th, or in general, the anti-government groups, 
I mean, even some white supremacist groups are using American narratives. The same thing that got everyone excited to root for the, I don't know, American hockey team in 1980, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of America, we are unique. We are going to fight those bad actors, whether they're abroad or domestic. I mean, I think that appeals to a wide range of people. You don't have to be an extremist to believe in the concept of American exceptionalism, whether you agree with that or not, or the, I've sort of mentioned the, the, the old movie, 12 Angry Men, where one person is going to change the other 11 jurors' mind because this is based on justice and what's right. That's a really appealing narrative. And I see them sort of using those elements to say their cause is the righteous cause. How do we create more critical thinking so people can scratch the surface and understand the manipulation that's happening? If you had asked me that in 2016, I would have said the same thing that I'm going to say now, which is essentially that you do have to increase the friction by which people receive misinformation. You do have to crank up the volume, of course, on timely, local, relevant and accurate information. That is to say that misinformation is cheap to free to produce. I mean, it really only takes a good imagination. Whereas knowledge and journalism is incredibly expensive. We've seen this, of course, with the pandemic, which is once medical misinformation reaches people, it is very hard to undo the damage that it does. And so there's a very high incentive for political disinformers, media manipulators, white supremacists, medical entrepreneurs to reach people before they've heard about the truth. And the truth is often really boring. It's not going to go viral. Nobody is going to be like, well, I heard the truth today. They're going to say, did you hear this other thing that I heard that like lizard people are running the government? And oh, right. That's so, not true. That's not true. Right. I thank you for. Yeah, me. it's no, it is true, but it's <laughs> only true in the U.S. <laughs> um, I say that just to say that, you know, that's what we like to talk about. I mean, palace intrigue that goes far back as Marie Antoinette. Right. The problem, though, of course, is one of scale, which is to say that usually if you're a believer in conspiracy theories, you're going to believe in more conspiracy theories. There's just a kind of person that this is their thing. But if millions of people are being exposed to the same thing all at once, and then they're in groups together talking to each other, it tends to reinforce that belief. Yeah. And then again, yeah. once they get into that rabbit hole, it becomes really hard to get out of. And I think that that's actually a feature of the social media ecosystem which is to say that I don't think we're going to fight it with facts alone. I think that we have to fight it at the level of amplification, which is a good thing, actually, for speech, because that means that you can be free to say the craziest stuff you want to say. However, when it starts to disrupt the capacity for other people to live their lives or the capacity for other professions to do their jobs, that's when we're going to need to take some kind of action, especially there's a real challenge here, Oren, with Facebook really centered a lot of its attention on coordinated inauthentic behavior, which is their term of art to describe fake news and bots and people showing up not as who they say they are. And for many years, white supremacists had to cloak their appearance online. Jesse Daniels' research really points this out well in her book, Cyber Racism. They don't need to do that anymore. And so there's actually a coordinated, authentic behavior problem, which is something that's been at the center of my research for the last five or so years that we have to reckon with. We have to reckon with someone like Steve Bannon, for instance, who will use any technology at his disposal to reach his aims. 
for me, what that looks like is that we're going to need to have much more of a whole of society approach. We're going to have to not depend on these platform companies to get their acts together. We're actually going to have to do the thing that none of us want, which is regulation. I think journalists are going to suffer the most from bad regulation. But I also feel like we're in a position where there's really become no other choice because of the fact that as bad as some of these CEOs at these large tech companies are, there are things that are worse. There are people out there who are looking for money. And once they unlock the scale question, we'll be able to unleash a technology on society that may be irreparable. Yeah. And now that you've been doing this for a while, you're sort of on the other side. And I'm sure there are people who ask you for advice. And what advice do you have for somebody who's considering a career dealing with difficult topics? I tweeted about this the other day, but grifters love a sale on talent. There are scams everywhere. One of the things that you have to hold true if you're not on this sort of tenure track road where you're doing research alone, doing big research projects requires an enormous amount of money and foundations by and large, are really amazing, but they're hard to navigate. Then there's a lot of other things that call themselves foundations or philanthropists that are essentially political ops. And so there's just a lot you got to learn, a lot you got to navigate, and to be, at the end of the day, resolute in only doing the things you want to do, which is hard to do when the funding is about something else. The other thing I wish I had learned earlier that I never got taught in grad school was how to write a good op-ed and like how to communicate what I was learning to people in a way that doesn't make them feel like they don't get it or they're not as smart as me or something. I care deeply that people feel comfortable asking me questions and asking for clarification. I think people sometimes forget there's a distance in most people's lives to this work that people who are dealing with this every day don't have. How do you create that distance? How do you deal with the complicated, often very vile, horrific nature of the things that you are doing every day, looking at every day? I mean, it's really hard to disengage when you're a mission-driven person. I used to lament that. I'd say, oh, well, you know, it's really hard to turn it off because you go into the living room and you turn on the TV and it's you know, for, you know, all through the end of 2020, it was the Proud Boys every day on TV. And I'm just like, why are you giving them more space? Why are you giving them more time? Why don't you talk to the victims? Why don't you talk to the people who are impacted? Why don't you talk to the advocates? And so the thing that keeps me going actually is that I have a very strong community of folks around me, particularly mission-driven journalists and advocates that care a lot more about the problem I don't know if I would survive studying this in isolation or studying this mm. without people who are doers. And then the other piece of this is my team, which is uh, uh, we are a cast of characters. But I say, yeah, I've kind of surrounded myself with people who get it. And if I do need to take a break, they understand and let me take a step back. One day, maybe, by the way, maybe your team can meet at a bar with my team, sort of like create the Star Wars bar scene, right, in terms of like interesting people. I really do think there should be a support network within my team. It's the same experience that you just described. People really lean on each other in these tough times. And other academics and experts that you become friends with are people that sort of understand what you're going through. 
we at Shorenstein are really looking into what it means to build a tech watchdog hub and bring together advocates and journalists and researchers into this space. Because I feel like the last four years has just been block and tackle, right? It has just been one fight after another. The next four years, the policy window changes. We still got to fight some of the the old fights and still obviously have to fight against these vicious racists that are not going to stop. Patricia Hill Collins asked a question at an American Sociological Association conference a few years ago. She asked, do we care as much as they do? And that's something that I've put on my wall and I look at every day and I say to myself, I have to, even when I don't want to, or even when my mom's calling and she needs something and, you know, I got to go to the doctor or whatever. You got to put life, you got to do your laundry, right? But every day you have to ask yourself, well, do you still care as much as they do? Because they're not going to stop. And so you do have to build those support structures and, and veer away from burnout as close as we all come to it. People who are not in this field, who want to be part of a solution, what's that one thing that somebody can do to say, as long as you're doing this, you are part of the fight for good and against extremism and misinformation? I think at this stage, you know, we have to dispense with the notion of clicktivism and slacktivism and actually get people to realize the power of these communication networks. If you are an individual, if you're not working within a group structure, share things that are timely, local, relevant, and accurate, just the boring stuff, snow emergency, local news, a little bit of color about the Little League team. Really don't overshare the outrageous. Don't overshare the noxious. Don't overshare the violent. I have a grand vision where if we do that enough, we will displace enough of the hate and disinformation and make a different kind of internet possible. And where that fails, <laughs> pick up your phone, call your congressman and tell them you want public interest obligations for the internet. You want timelines and news feeds to have better curation and you want the disinformation gone. And if yeah. you can't do that, tweet at him. <laughs> <laughs> where can uh, people go to find more information about you and your work? They can head over to mediamanipulation.org, which is where we do a bunch of research that is open access. So you can read it. There's no paywalls. And you can learn about how we do this work. It's more of a case studies are more forensically put together. And there's a lot of rich information there that you can learn about how media manipulation and disinformation campaigns come together and then also learn about how to fight against them. And so if you check out that website, there is surely a piece of content on there for everyone at this stage. Awesome. Joan, thank you again so much for making the time. It's been a pleasure for me to virtually meet you. I've been a fan from afar for a while. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Really appreciate it. It's great to be in league. Let's keep it moving. Right on. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org.
American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.